along my professional development and memory glue, I started to observe the people that I admired and the people that were moving forward in their career. And I think it was just kind of this switch of like, it's okay to not have the perfect answer, but if you've got an idea, share it. Because maybe it is a perfect answer, maybe it's at least like the best answer. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Julia Fitzgerald, not really joining us because it's her office, right? We got two managed directors out here, Chris. Julia, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. The Prada, Wisconsin. That's right. (laughs) That's true. Jay Fitz in the house. Jay Fitz in the house. Let's get into it, Jay Fitz. (laughs) Julia, would be great just for for the people listening, right? Because, you know, how many women managed directors do we have? We have three now, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Yeah. So we we don't have as many as we we always want more. We always want more more capable women leading this company. So people are listening. They want to know about you. So to get started, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Yeah, of course. So as Chris kind of prefaced, Wisconsin in the house. Yep. Grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. From there, I went to Arizona State for college. What were you like as a kid? As a kid, I was energetic, um, had a lot of hobbies. I remember my mom got some feedback about me going over to friends' houses that I would go from one task to the next and couldn't sit still and wanted to explore all the different things uh-huh. they had in their house. Yeah, lots of different interests. Siblings? One younger brother. Okay, yep. so you're the eldest? I'm the oldest, yeah. Okay. He lives in Colorado Springs, so not too far away. Excellent. And what, yeah. what were you like when you were in high school? Were you a kid play sports? you have a job? you really in school? Something else? Played four different sports oh, wow. throughout okay. high school. Worked a lot as well. Do you have a favorite? I actually played basketball. Okay. Yeah. Point guard. As Point I'm guard. Sure oh, okay. By the height. The distributor. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. You were scoring point guard or pass, pass, pass. A little bit of both. Okay. Of um, not scoring as much as I should have been. Oh, really? okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. We were All right. a losing team, but that's okay. We had grit. <laughs> there you go. And then you said you worked. What did you do? Did you always work in high school or when did you start working? I started working right when I could. So age 14 in Wisconsin. I worked in the restaurant industry from the very beginning. Really? Yeah. When it started just hosting at restaurants. But in Wisconsin, you can actually start serving at age 16. So I was even waiting tables that early and young. So, yeah. What did that job teach you at such a young age? That's a person I have a lot. I, I was never a server. We've lied at admiration for people who come that. Oh, yeah. Or had those jobs. Definitely. It taught me to juggle a lot of tasks at once, taught me to be organized, a lot of customer service stuff, communication, whether it's communicating what the customer wants to the kitchen or this issue or that. So, I mean, so many things. Yeah. And then what did you think you wanted to be or what you wanted to do when you were in high school, you know, when you were all grown up? That's a great question. Um, Growing up, I always wanted to actually be a chef. In fact, when I was a kid, my parents joked about making a show, Julia the Child. And so I've always been really passionate about cooking. And so that's actually kind of what influenced 
my area of study in college, which was nutrition and food and management. So, well, quick sidebar. Yeah. So my kids watched all those cooking shows. Kids, mm -hmm. the baking shows, the cooking shows. Do you watch those shows and just say, "Hey, you know what? I should have worn a different era. I'd be a headliner on one of these shows." Yeah, I mean, my family—they're all foodies, so we would have the Food Network on all the time. Okay, I'd be right. watching it. All right, I'd be trying to replicate things they were doing. So that's definitely like a passion okay. of mine. Okay, but you know, working in the food service industry, quickly realized that when others are playing, you're working, and so that lifestyle didn't really line up with my long-term goals. Okay, all right, yeah, we'll get into that. So, all right, so you're coming out of Wisconsin. Where'd you, you know, how'd you end up going to, where'd you go to college and how, how'd you end up going there? Yeah. So I grew up like 10 minutes from UW-Madison. So a bunch of my friends went to college there, but I was like, I want to get out of here. So, you know, growing up in one of the coldest places, uh -huh. I decided, let me go to one of the warmest places. So I chose ASU, you know, big school, big sports, good programs. I also, it was important to me to be in kind of a city. I didn't want to be somewhere rural. And so that was a lot of the things that influenced yeah. my choice. Wish I had a better story of like, you know, they story. had the best business school and I no. wanted to go there, but it was kind of just the environment I wanted to be yeah. in. Yeah. I'd love that. Down there. But great. Yeah. And what did you major in? I majored in oh, said that. nutrition right. and had a concentration in food system sustainability. All right. And then what did you think you're going to do when you come out of college? So when you were in college, where did you think yeah. you were going to go with that? To be completely honest, yeah. like a lot of people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do going into college. Mm -hmm. I actually started my, I declared a Spanish major because the undeclared dorms weren't as nice as the, <laughs> the dorms. So I started a Spanish major thinking I was going to minor in it because yeah. I studied Spanish all through high school. Yeah. Ultimately, figured out along the way that I wasn't as passionate about learning the high level, you know, ins and outs of the language, but still, you know, really like the cultural aspect. So I took a step back, talked to my guidance counselor and shared some of my passions yeah. for food, yeah. travel, yeah. tourism, all of that. And so they had just created this program that was essentially a nutrition management program with a concentration on tourism management. So it felt like this perfect combination of all the things I was interested in. Maybe I'm fast forwarding too much, but after a couple internships, I realized it really wasn't a combination of the things I was passionate. Yeah. It was sort of like picking little pieces of it, but mm -hmm. wasn't enhancing my passions. Tell us about the internships, because I think there are people, well, I'm, I'm curious about that. We just had something on, you know, work for you. And she was talking about her internships. Because they just help you decide what you don't want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of people come to Memory Blue, do the internship program, and then come back and work for yeah. us full time. Yeah. And I'm jealous of those people. You know, I wish I had found an internship where it's like the light bulb is on and I figure out that's what I want to do next. That was not the case. I want to, I guess the, the bigger internship that was really a segue to a career was essentially working for the national school lunch program yeah. to oversee large school districts and run that for them yeah. being someone who's really passionate about food yeah. and loves to cook myself i think it was a combination of a lot of things yeah. but seeing school lunches come out every day wasn't exactly like the yeah. foodie experience i was looking for yeah. Yeah. but i also just felt like i wasn't surrounded by 
hungry, competitive people. It was just, you know, clock in, clock out, do the job, get by. And I felt like there was a lot more that I had to offer than just orchestrating an organization where people just were a number and just went through the motions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good because hopefully some people listen to this podcast who are thinking about coming to work here, Mm -hmm. but maybe they didn't think about sales as a profession before. Yeah. Before they ran every blue. Because not everybody's exposed to that stuff in an undergrad. Yeah. Some people, and they, a lot of people don't know about it. I didn't know about it as a kid growing up, and lots of people still don't. So you can try out these things just because you go to school for a certain degree or have a certain internship doesn't mean you can't you know, change what you want to do. Definitely. And I actually had this epiphany, like, I don't know, probably a year into being a DM where I was like, I want to go back to my high school and like talk to people about sales. Yeah. Because I was not this kid that was like hungry business attitude in high school. Right. But there were so many attributes of my personality that I think, you know, if teachers, guidance counselors were paying attention, they could have been like, you know, maybe this would be a good career path for you. And so I wish I had kind of had that guidance when I was yeah. younger to explore that because it wasn't on my radar at all. Julia, so wife, you, you, you had me at point guard. <laughs> That's it. I should have told my coach. Yeah, <laughs> sales. Yeah. It's, I was putting my finger up, Chris, just to make a joke. My wife had that experience in high school and I changed like her career director because there are high school counselors who go in sales. Yeah. Like most high school counselors, though, I don't think they know about it as a profession. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But it's good because you ended up this for a reason. So let's, let's go there. She graduated from school. Mm-hmm. What did you do after that? So I took the summer and I solo traveled Southeast Asia. Oh. Yeah. That was incredible. Solo. Yeah. Yeah. I bought a one. Well, my graduation gift was a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia. Been working all through college. What did you do in college when you were waiting tables? tables. Yeah, bartending, serving, and then you know the internship I was talking about was paid, so that allowed me to do that. And I was in Thailand and Vietnam for three months by myself, staying in hostels, exploring, moving from city to city. Did we talk about this? How much money did that cost you? That trip? I think in total, if we don't include the flights, I spent. $4,000 in the three months I was there. And towards the end, I was being a little bit more cautious with my money. But I mean, I was, I was able to do all the things I wanted to do. Excursions, activities, you know, stay at really nice, beautiful hostels that were clean, young. I said three months, three months. Three months. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. Then what happened when you came back? It was a great trip. Yeah, I came back and was not sure exactly what I wanted to do next. You know, I think part of the reason I traveled was like, you know, explore myself, figure out what I love. So I came back and I was managing a high volume bar in downtown Madison and having a lot of fun because it allowed me to take off and travel and I was saving money. So I was living with my family. But it got to a point where after, you know, about a year or so, I was kind of like, okay, I can keep doing this. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying it. But I've been graduated for about a year. Like it's time for me to take that next step because I don't want to be a career bartender, you know, for the same reason I didn't want to become a chef. It's like, I want the stability of a nine to five. So from there, I was actually deciding between Denver and Austin and, you know, kind of 
I think playing into my adventurous spirit of like, just get up and go and travel Southeast Asia. I was sort of just like, I'm going to spend the summer in one of these cities and whichever one I find a better roommate situation at faster, I'm going to move there for the summer. If I love it, I'll put roots down. I'll stay. Yeah. If I don't, you know, I can try somewhere else. Yeah. And so moved to Denver. Yeah. I think it was three weeks after I'd made that decision. I moved to Denver and found an incredible roommate situation. And I lived with these great people who became like family for a couple of years. Yeah. And during that time, decided you know, Denver is going to be home for a little bit. And that's when I started looking at jobs and came to Memory Blue. Wow. I got, I want to segue just real quick. Yeah. Because we want to talk about a little later because you took some cool trips that you've been working for us too. Mm-hmm. Why, what's so special about travel to you? I think like for me, it helps you just realize how small the world is, connect with other people, get unique perspectives. You know, that's one of the great things about Denver too is it's kind of a... It's a melting pot of people from around the U.S. It's a great kind of like destination after college. And ASU was similar. So that among just exploring beautiful places, um, I think it makes people more well-rounded and able to connect with others in different ways. Nice. That's great. All right. So you ended up here. How did you find out about us? So you ended up in Denver doing your thing. How did memory bully been like? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. The, the, the recruiting team's not not I don't know they're not rolling where you were rolling I don't think. But how, yeah, how? yeah. So I had just kind of started my job search and I'm starting to kind of narrow down, looking at some food and beverage sales roles, really casting a wide net because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and through that started looking at tech and really didn't have a strong understanding that this was the direction I wanted to go. Yeah. But Andrew DiNardo reached out to me on LinkedIn. Unbelievable. DiNardo. DiNardo. And from there, it just was a really unique experience as a candidate because it felt so comfortable. You know, he was a recruiter that was very conversational, very helpful. It didn't feel like he was feeding me answers, but rather like giving me guidance and expertise to kind of navigate conversations as a recent college grad. So between that and then interviewing with Joey, coming in, seeing the office. Green flags? Is that what you call them? Yeah, lots of green flags. Yeah, what, so tell us what green flags mean to you. Yeah, so I'm sure everyone knows what a red flag is. Yeah. You know, flipping it, it's, a green flag is like those signals that just make you feel like you're going in the right direction. Yeah. So, you know, I think just being as conversational as it was, the interview just felt comfortable. There was so many reasons why it felt like this could be a good path for me. Yeah. For example, you know, all the different career opportunities, you know, the five paths for growth, seeing Joey come out to Denver from Virginia to open an office. I was really excited about being in with kind of the first round of SDRs in the Denver office. Right. Was that a red flag? It was quiet, wasn't it, when you interviewed here? It was quiet when I came in, but on my way out of, I think it was my second round interview, I was on my way out and Nikki Johnson was walking oh, in. Oh, no. There you go. Hold on. Yeah. Yep. Nikki Johnson, yeah, so- the, the one woman party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably known for doing the worm at top. And oh yes, She's dancing behind on client calls and all that. So on my way out, she was walking in. 
probably had a pint of ice cream in her hand because yeah. that was a common breakfast for her. Yeah. But she was just like so bubbly yeah. and friendly and was gushing about how awesome the company was and how, she, you know, she's so excited to meet people in Denver and came out here from Virginia. And like, you know, I had this great interview with Joey, but then it was kind of like this firsthand authentic SDR working there is telling me all these great things. It's just it really helped make me feel confident that this was a place where people genuinely like to yeah, be. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't had a career job after college. So just kind of seeing like, okay, people show up and they like to be here. In yeah. fact, this girl moved across the country to come help open this office. Like they have to be doing something, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Hell yeah, we were. Forever <laughs> so sales. So you had it, but sales was still like, was it because you were like, you, know, you played sports in high school, but you're always working, like you're hustling, right? Tips, yeah. You left this out, but tips is a, that's a sales gig. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a service, oh, yeah. sort of service gig. Mm -hmm. So, and you obviously are smart with your money because you're spending on like these great things, not video games, right? <laughs> when did the idea of sales be like, okay, I want to get into sales? Because a lot of people don't think that. Yeah. You, you know, they think of sales is like all oh, about the money. You're like, I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe they think it's not professional. Yeah, I think they're kind of, turning point for me was just after traveling, after having an internship that I knew that wasn't the direction I wanted to go, yeah. kind of took a step back of like, you know, what parts do I like about serving? Who am I as a person? What gets me fired up? And some of the things that were top of mind were like, you know, I love to compete with my coworkers, even if it was just in a restaurant setting. Like, I wanted the section where I thought I could make the most tips. Yeah. If I wasn't in that section, I wanted to still make sure I was making the most tips. Yeah. So, plus, like, my friend group in high school, you know, very competitive, yeah. all played sports. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of where I was born and bred is just that competitive yeah. edge. Yeah. But I also, with serving and bartending and all of the restaurant industry stuff, I loved that reap what you sow mentality. Yeah. It's like, I know if I show up on a Saturday night, I can make $300 at yep. least and walk out of here. And so it's my direct work that I put in is financial gain coming out. Okay. And so sales is what I think one of the most reflective of that same kind of, you know, reap what you yep. sow yep. mentality. Okay. Which is all true. Mm -hmm. So you're okay. And, but this small office is small. How small was the office when you started? I think I was the fifth hire in the Denver office. Yeah. So it was yeah. a couple of DMs. It was one DM just plush? Joey, one DM slash DM. It was Abby Peters, okay. Nikki Johnston, yep. Morgan Hargett. Yep. I got hired with a guy named Gabe, and then it was myself. Okay. Small crew. Small crew. And you started. Was it remote? Was it, were we in the office? So I was the last Academy cohort to go to HQ before COVID oh, shut wow. down the world. Okay. So went to Academy for my then two days, yeah. came back. I was in the office. Does that count as travel? That's work travel. That's not like travel travel, right? Go under. Yeah. yeah. Traveling for two days. Yeah. Came. I was in the office for seven business days. Yeah. We didn't even have our Zoom room set up or TVs or anything yeah. because the office had opened, you know, weeks before yeah and so we got a calendar invite thrown on by chris and 
we were all huddling around Joey's laptop to hear this company-wide announcement because the TV wasn't connected or something. Yeah. And so I remember me and my four other coworkers at that point all huddled around and Chris is on there like, you know, I hate to, to do this. This is disappointing, you know, but we're being cautious. We're, everyone's getting sent home indefinitely because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we want to keep everyone safe. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I just got to know these people. I was so excited for my like corporate, you know, first real job. And now they're telling me I have to go sit at my dining room table for the foreseeable future and do this job from there. And so that was definitely an interesting start to things. But what I will say on that vein is like it, well, I only knew these people for a week or so with the Zoom happy hours, the quiplash, the constant communication. I mean, Nikki and me would be on FaceTime <laughs> while we were playing. So when we finally all met up, I think our first time like really meeting back in person was socially distanced at a park. But it felt like I had known these people like we had been in office every day. So it really helped me through the pandemic with having that kind of closeness and building relationships despite not actually being in the office. Chris, she started March of 2020. Yeah, that's what, she, that's what she told me. That's what she told us. Yeah, that's like right when COVID happens. Oh, yeah. Right? It's not like yeah. you started in February. I mean, you started right. That's like mm -hmm. your first month with us. And then you guys had mid-social distance at a park outside. Yeah, now it's probably, that had to be maybe even a couple months later. Okay. Yeah. We didn't know what was going to happen. Right, exactly. Yeah. We just kind of kept working. Mm -hmm. And so you, you guys kind of formed that. That's a good common bond to have with a group of people. Yeah. We started a gig, particularly when we eventually came back to the office. Yeah, definitely. So what was the job like? You had never done anything like this before. I had not. And it was challenging, you know, when the world's shutting down, not a lot of people want to explore new technologies. And so, you know, the first month was, it was a lot of ramping up, a lot of getting to know. I worked on a managed security service provider as my first campaign, which, you know, I mentioned that I really like Spanish. This was a way harder foreign language to learn from me <laughs> than Spanish. And so it was not only ramping up on tech sales, but it was ramping up product knowledge and how to speak to these CISOs at huge companies. Uh -huh. So it was an awesome experience, but it, it took some time to get the hang of things. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like doing that from your, where you were living? <laughs> so whenever people complain, you know, sometimes people want to work from home. But I'll always tell them is like, there's a, we countless reasons why we like having people in office, but I've done the remote thing. We had to go remote with COVID. And let me tell you, getting hung up on when you're sitting alone at your kitchen table working, it hurts a lot more than when you're in an office. <laughs> so it, the, you know, the good days and the bad, it made me very tenacious. And I think I got a lot grittier through that time because you just had to bounce back from it because. Yep. No one knew what was going on with the world. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's a sad, it's a, that's a sad hang up when you're experiencing <laughs> that by yourself. Yeah, definitely. Versus you're out on the floor with people. Right. Shake it off or it happened to yeah. me twice already today. Exactly, right? exactly. What, as you were into the job, what did you get good at? And when did you come back to the office? Yeah. Never oh, man. We were doing kind of like a hybrid schedule okay. for a while to okay. limit yep. Yep. exposure. Yep. So I think it, there were sort of waves of it because our Denver office grew pretty quickly. So we were 
on a hybrid partly because of the size yeah. and stuff. So I honestly, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I guess, I guess that's my friend, that's wrong question for me. What was it like when you got into the office? Yeah. Where other people were around you. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing was just, it felt re-energizing. It became this kind of like, I mean, we were, because it was still pandemic time. So a lot of things were shut down. It wasn't the same, like, Denver that I knew before. And so we were a really tightly knit group of going over to people's houses after work and planning dinners or going and doing this or that, going hiking together, camping, whatever. And so it was kind of like coming back and I got a little bit of a friend group back. But not only that was started to take on mentees. The office was growing. So I was helping Who were your mentees? Matt Kessler. Okay. Kessler's yeah, yep. he's great. Yes. Ethan Chase. Yes. Oh, there you go. He's still here. <laughs> yeah. Alexa McNown was okay. mentee. Yep. And there are a couple others. So you, you took on the Mentica leadership role. Did anybody ask you to do that? Or like, did you just kind of have that happen? You know, Memory Blues has a mentorship program that now is even more robust than it was. But as we were growing, it was kind of this natural progression of like, you've got people coming on board and we've got people who know what they're doing let's pair them up and make sure that they've got all the tools to be successful yeah and so it was sort of a mix of both it was joey recognizing hey you know you're really settling into the role and someone that's kind of established themselves as a leader on the team why don't you formalize that a little bit more but also me recognizing hey you know i want a little more out of this i want to help other people get there and even just the exposure to different technologies Mm -hmm. you know that's one of the big benefits of being a mentor is you've got your retained client that's your main focus, but you know, maybe you're on a cybersecurity campaign and you've always had a passion for healthcare. And so that healthcare tech, you know, would be a great fit for you to help that person ramp up on. Oh, that's a great point. When you were easing into the SDR job, what was something you were good at as an SDR? What was like calling a superpower? I think that the, organization and flow of the day it's like oh tell us about that yeah like especially with my campaign and everything going on in the world like linkedin was such a good place to get traction and book meetings and so i know time management can be really challenging especially as people are ramping up in the sdr role but i was adding i was doing 100 linkedin touches a day making around 150 dials, sending out tailored emails. And a lot of that boiled down to like, just, you know, buckling down and finding ways to manage my time really effectively so I could get it all done. Being focused. Yeah, being focused, even just like navigating accounts where you're using something that this person said in one part of the organization in a call to the level person, you know, that kind of surround the yeah. couch approach yeah. that we talk about. Yeah. And it's really hard to do that unless you're very organized and strategic. Yeah. And so, you know, even now I, my organization has of course gotten much better, Yeah. but I was finding kind of creative ways to hold myself accountable, whether it was Excel docs, notebooks, reminders, you know, sort of the whole scope of things to keep myself in check because naturally being remote there's a lot more time where you have flexibility yep and so joey wasn't sitting right next to me he wasn't able to walk the sales floor and so in order to be successful i had to really 
find ways to make it happen. Yeah. So, and then that you would just, when you structure your day a certain way, I mean, we have the blitzes and those things, but how structured would you have to get? Cause those are a lot of things going on. Yeah. For me and everyone's different. Some people like very rigid structure planned out to the minute. Yeah. For me, it was more of like a task list. Okay. Of, like here are my highest priority items. Here are the things that absolutely need to get done today. Here are the couple that can potentially roll over to tomorrow or even mm. can be more like weekly goals. Yeah. And that would just kind of organically happen based on what, what you thought you need to get done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I would keep adding to that list throughout the day and then, you know, reorganize that list. So it's kind of this like continuous evolution of mm-hmm. this master to-do list. Yeah. You could have a cooking show and a to-do, <laughs> to-do list show. Right. So right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How is that? style organization changes you've got from a dm to an md there's a lot more to keep track of yeah, really <laughs> in the md role yep. yes yeah, yeah so how is it you keep track of things the same way now because now you're not and i see even as dm you were in your manager yeah like, yeah i think a lot of it does carry over because whether it's dm or md you know you still you've got the items that fall solely on you kind of like and I see one, yep. but then you've got all these various moving pieces of delegating this and doing that. And so, you know, I kind of like to segment it a little bit in my head of like, here are the things I need to get done. And then of the things that are more like group tasks, then that almost falls into like a different category and those rank in importance. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. So go back to this a little fast. How, when you were here, you were doing your thing. Who are the people in the office? You're like, man, that person. Good. Or maybe who was the best person in the office besides yourself as an SDR and why? When I, right when I started? Yeah. Yeah. When, when you're an SDR, when you look back on it, you're like, man, that person is good. Yeah. Matt Kessler. Kessler. He, okay. Yeah. I mean, he came along a little bit after yeah. I did, but I think he was like our first hire after the COVID shutdown. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, he has a background like he was a youth pastor yeah. minister so his ability to communicate you know he had this public speaking background and way of just getting people engaged and it showed when he was on the phone yeah. so he was very thorough in his explanation but yeah. concise yeah. and he was also working in cybersecurity, so i could very much appreciate you know maybe some of the areas that took me a little longer to develop as an SDR because I didn't have that background where I was so confident and comfortable speaking to people. Yeah, I picked up in what he was doing and I yeah. was like, Wow, yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good SDR. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's good to hear it, that's the value of learning from your colleagues, yeah, right? Definitely. Memory Blue alumni. Are you looking for your next top performing SDR with the competitive drive, hustle mentality, and passion for sales that you can bank on? The Rising Stars program connects accomplished Memory Blue SDRs with alumni looking to expand their teams. Rising Stars have completed their SDR journey with us and are chomping at the bit to land a new and exciting high-tech sales opportunity. They've been professionally trained, coached, and mentored thriving in the very environment where you launched your career. Alumni like you hire Memory Blue Rising Stars because they can rest easy knowing they're hiring the best in the business. Learn how you can access this unique pool of sales talent by heading to memoryblue.com slash alumni.
Let's talk about that cyber thing real quick. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't want to be on a cyber campaign. Yeah. I've got a good story about this, actually. Hook it up. <laughs> okay. Corcoran, I love stories. Yeah. Corcoran, so, love stories. <laughs> this one's for you, Corcoran. I came in to the office and, you know, fourth and fifth hire, me and my colleague that started at the same time as me, yep. the three that had started prior were all in the same campaign. Okay. And they were on a client and this was a robotic digitization Okay. And I came in and Joey told me, like, you're going to be on a managed cybersecurity service provider campaign. Yeah. And I was like. Which is hard. I was like, oh. Those are hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't really sound like something I would want to be working on. (laughs) And I was like, everyone else gets to work on a robot campaign. Like, that's so much cooler. And so, Tom Cruise and robots. Right, so, exactly. Right. I was thinking yeah. like, exactly. Those robots you see on the internet, right? They can like walk and talk. Yeah, yeah. And that's not what the robot <laughs> yeah. that digitizes paper documents does. But, right. you know, I was kind of in this grass is greener mindset. Yeah. And they were all on this campaign. I was so jealous of the camaraderie they had. Yeah. But as I ramped up, I was like so enamored by the cybersecurity industry. Boom! Yeah, and I was working with awesome people where my AEs were extremely helpful. They were collaborative. They were encouraging. And so that also had a big impact on my experience overall. But, you know, it became this thing where I was like, I came in not knowing what facet of tech I wanted to be in at all. And the first one, I kind of initially was like, "Mm, not sure if this is going to be it for me. And I ended up, you know, wrapping up that campaign and thinking, you know, whatever I end up doing after Memory Blue, cybersecurity, it's a good chance that that could be one of the routes I take. Yeah. And, and, and why do we not, why do some people don't see it as an opportunity? So you kind of, fine, everybody's allowed to have a little bit of venting and like looking over at the other side of the finish, like, man, that looks kind of good. But like, then you kind of come back to reality. But other people don't see it that way. Like, what your explanation for why you kind of saw it the way you did? How do you try and get people who work for you to look at it that way? Yeah. I mean, I've seen it firsthand as a DM with SDRs on my team. It was like, memory blue sets you up to be successful with what's next. And oftentimes, the path with more resistance makes you that much better at the next step. You know, whether it's working on multiple campaigns, targeting, you know, lower connection rate industries, all of those things, you know, sure, maybe it takes you a couple months more to hit quota. Candidly, I didn't hit quota my first month. But, you know, your first job after college or even your first job breaking into a new industry like tech sales, it's okay to not have that immediate success because this is so much about learning and developing and growing. And so if you're just handed the easiest campaign in the office, the skills that you have afterwards, you're not going to be as good at problem solving. You're not going to be as quick to pivot when you see patterns of maybe not finding success in certain avenues. And so I think it makes you that much more nimble and effective down the road. And so I really appreciated that I didn't hit quota my first month. But then when I did, it was that much sweeter. Like it Mm -hmm. felt like I really earned it. Mm -hmm. And once I was cruising, like it was, it was a repeatable process. You know, I figured out what worked and what talk tracks I could use and what sounded like me and 
So I didn't want the easier route. Yeah. What do you mean sound like you? I think everyone's got their own style. Memory Blue teaches you the fundamentals, teaches you industry best practices. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, like prospects do recognize when you're being genuine, mm -hmm. you're using your own words. Mm -hmm. And so finding ways to make it, you know, effectively communicate the client's message. So I'm not misleading anyone, but putting my own spin on it and really being authentically me yep. is kind of that turning point where I went from struggling to book meetings or being nervous about my product knowledge to being like, okay, it's just a conversation. I'm here to solve a problem. I'm here to generate interest. And that's when I kind of came into my own and started really getting the results I was looking for. Yeah. That's great. So people go through this crisis of confidence around their identity mm -hmm. as a person and then what they're trying to do in this role. Because the role is so personal because the rejection is still very personal. Yeah. You're going through it. So you got to figure out how to get through it. How do you try and like relay this to people who work for you? I think everyone's different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is going to get one person fired up is not going to get the other person fired up. So really getting to know the people on your team and mm -hmm. understanding what it is that excites them, why they're here, what their goals are, because then you can start to make a plan with them. I really like to be a collaborative manager. Uh -huh. And so leveling with the people is like, you know, truly every new hire lunch, I tell them I'm going to give you 110%. I expect the same. And every time I say that, I mean it. Like, mm -hmm. truly to my core, do. I'll do anything to make them successful as long as I'm getting yep. the same in return. When you were an SDR, you get a perfect quarter, right? Tell everybody what that is, just so, you know, and people, not everybody knows, but it's just. Yeah, perfect quarter is hitting quota every single month of the quarter. Yeah, and you got to go to tops. I did. Yeah, as an SDR. Right? Yeah. Which is great. I mean, people earn it for different ways. That's, that's the most difficult way to earn it. Mm -hmm. Right. I think. All right. So as you're an SGR, you're in the path doing this thing. Where'd you think you wanted to go? Cause you're working, you're seeing like some people get converted, some people stick around some, you know, like you're hearing about what's going on in other parts of the company. Where'd you think you wanted to go with this? Yeah. Like I mentioned, one of the big enticing parts of sales was the reap what you sow. Yep. You put in X amount of work, you make this much money. And that was really exciting for me. And so what lines up most with that is the AE route or, you know, an individual contributor role. So I came into Memory Blue, not really having a clear idea of what facet of tech I wanted to be in, but I was pretty sure that I wanted to come in and close deals. Like that was my goal. In fact, coming in, I don't think I really had a clear understanding that you can do all these different things outside of become an SDR and then you move up and then you close business. Yeah. Of course, throughout the interview process and yes. trainings and stuff, I got a much more clear understanding of that. But coming in, I didn't really realize the full scope of what a sales board. It's hard to, because right. so much, right? Right, right. And not having that background and yeah. stuff. So, you know, my goal was come in, close million dollar deals for some awesome tech company. Uh -huh. However, <laughs> I actually, that first cybersecurity company I was working with, they really liked me yep. and they made an offer to bring me on board. And when that happened, it was sort of a moment of like, let me pause and think about what it is that I really like about what I'm doing, like about the day to day, and then maybe where I see myself going next. And when I took that breath, 
I realized it wasn't so much like I really wanted to hit quota, get top 10, make all this money. It was more like I loved collaborating with my coworkers. I loved being a mentor, you know, giving a piece of advice and seeing that result in someone else booking a meeting. And so with that, I came to the conclusion, like, maybe what I thought I wanted out of this isn't really what I like about the job. And so around that time, it was about my three-month mark, our office was growing and Joey, I think it was in a PM model, was like, listen, I've been kind of playing MD and DM because the office is small, but my goal is to keep growing the office and eventually have other people manage teams and then I'll yeah. manage them. And so he was, he said, come talk to me if this is something you're interested in. And so I think the next day I went into his office and I'm like, let's talk about this. <laughs> and you did. And I did. And you ended up doing it. Uh-huh. And then how long you were, were you a DM? I was a DM for about a year and a half. Okay. Wow. it's good. Yeah. And what, what's the best thing about that job? The team. The team? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. It's so cool with Memory Blue that you go through these like different eras of your team. So like, Right when I started as a DM, I had a bunch of new people join my team. And it was kind of like six months after that, we were like, oh, those were the good old days. And then another six months after that, we look at the team and it's a different group of awesome, unique individuals. And it's like, those were the other good old days. (laughs) And so it really is great to be on a team where you're helping people get to where they want to be and watching them grow and you know, you're developing as a manager. And so I think just the team culture, all of that is what I really liked about being a DM, strategizing, helping people hit their goals. Mm -hmm. I had someone on my team, a client approached me of like, hey, this person's underperforming. We want them off the campaign. And I'd worked with this client for a little bit of time. You know, it wasn't one of these like super long-term clients. Yeah, But I was like, listen, client, give me two weeks. Like I feel so confidently that we can get this person there. Like give me a a little while to prove it before we make that move. And the next month that person hit quota. And it was such a win for me and that individual who they were a really hard worker. There were just certain things that they were missing the mark on. And we finally got them there. Yeah. That's excellent. It's exciting. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge of that role for the SDRs? We're thinking about being a delivery manager. It's a very fulfilling job too, but it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it has a high degree of difficulty to land those jumps. It's a hard, hard job. There are so many moving pieces of the DM role that it's almost impossible to be proactive with every single aspect of it. Because you've got a big team, you've got a bunch of clients, you know, you're always recruiting and you're a hiring manager. So there's just so many moving pieces. So I think just like, at the core of that is like being organized, being proactive. Yeah. And it's a lot of personalities to work with. Yes. It's like you have so many different types of people and everyone's learning style is different. So you have to be so adaptable as a DM. Yeah. And you have the clients. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you. Our clients are very demanding. But what do you think that job taught you? So you told me what you liked about it, but what are the lessons in that role? That's another one where it's like, how much time you got? <laughs> yeah, we all the time. We all the time. People want to know, like, 
They don't want to hear Chris and I talk about it. They want to hear about somebody who's, who's ascended the peak. Yeah. The mountain, I guess. They don't want to ascend the peak. Well, I remember when I started as an SDR, talking to my mom about the job, and she was like, you're going to be cold calling? You? <laughs> like, because I, you know. And I, let me jump real quick. Yeah, yeah. Every mom's worst nightmare, <laughs> right? That their daughters tell them, I'm going to go on this hill and make some cold calls. Well, I think she was just so surprised because she was like, you're never like that person that's like talking to strangers in the grocery store and yeah. like, you know, and like, I'm a social person. Absolutely. But I'm not like this extreme extrovert that is always the loudest in the room. Right. So I think and she was just. Nor do you need to be. Exactly. But keep going. Sorry, you think? Yeah, of course not. But I think she was just so surprised by my decision that this was my choice of all the things I could be doing. I'm yeah. choosing to cold call people. Yeah. And so <laughs> from that, you know, I learned so much of just communicating with people. Uh-huh. So from there to DM, there was a bit of a jump. But I think from DM to where I am now is like, you learn to communicate with so many different types of people. Mm-hmm. You learn to be thorough in your communication. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. So it's not just like, how do I talk to this person? It's like, what do I need to say in order to get them to understand what I'm saying? I would also add to that is just the confidence. Whether it's fake it till you make it. You know, there were some days where I didn't have the answer and I had to try to figure out the situation. I think it just made me so much more well-rounded of an individual, both personally and professionally. Yeah, absolutely, right? And, and you were the first to get promoted in the Denver office. I was. Yeah, so yeah. that's like a nice little claim to fame. It is, I think yeah. It is. Yeah, it's a, a unique experience because Joey was still managing a team of SDRs. Mm-hmm. So whereas now delivery managers, their MD is not running a team outside of right. the other DMs. So there was a lot more that I had to just kind of fail forward with and figure out because... With a new office, there are some growing pains. Yes. And so it taught me kind of independence and problem solving and knowing when I need to go to bring it up the chain if there yeah. is a problem. So, so many aspects that just my development skyrocketed. First, I'm going to talk about that. So, this is more challenging for folks out in the wild or, you know, at the outposts or the offices in some ways because it's just you guys here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you were the only DM, the first DM promoted. And you're right. Joe is kind of preoccupied doing this thing. He's a good manager. But you're right. It's a little, it's a little different. So that's why it's such an amazing job. Yeah. Right? And then when you are DM interviewing SDRs, you still have to do SDRs now, potentially. Mm-hmm. What, what are the things you look for? I mean, there are a lot of different things that I look for. I keep defaulting to, oh, there's so many things. But yeah. this one, job one is two. hard. Yeah. So work ethic is such an important piece of it is you have to be willing to put in the work. Like I was saying, your first job out of college or first job breaking into a new industry, it's okay to really put your nose to the grindstone because it's going to make whatever is next after that feel easier. Yeah. So I look for that work ethic. And by the stories people tell, you know, one thing I like to ask is just like, What's the biggest goal you've set for yourself and achieved? And then, you know, they may tell me I did X, Y, Z. 
really digging into the steps it took to get there. Why was that such a hard goal? You know, what were the obstacles to get there? What work did it really take for you to move from not being able to hit that goal to accomplishing it and feeling great about it? So that's that's one way. Listening to how they talk about hard work and being competitive and leaning into a challenge. But along with that, like coachability is such an important aspect. And if I had resisted coaching, if I had resisted training and using my resources, I would not be where I am. That Memory Blue is so great because we hire people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds. And I think everyone has something to learn from the people around them. Yeah. And so being willing and excited to improve and get better is also such an important part of being an SDR at Memory Blue. Yeah. Yeah. It is. What's the biggest misconception you had about being an SDR? I really thought it was going to be super cutthroat. Like I thought I was going to come in and hate all the people I worked <laughs> with because they were trying to steal my leads and step on toes. I had some friends who started as SDRs within other companies and it sounded intense. Like, you know, there are intense days here. There are days where people are in competition with each other for incentives, etc. But like, I did not think it was going to be this culture where people really are excited about other people's wins. And I was so surprised that when I hit quota, everyone was, it seemed like as stoked or more stoked than I was. <laughs> so that was, that was probably the biggest misconception I had. What about the biggest misconception about being an SDR leader? I thought it was going to be easier. I'll tell you that much. Um, (laughs) What what made it so hard? In the beginning, well, for starters, I was in the seat for eight months before I became a DM, which objectively is pretty quick to move into Mm -hmm. a more leadership role. And so while I felt really equipped as an SDR, I kind of thought that meant, okay, ready for the next step. And that wasn't the case. I'd mentored a few people. I'd worked on a PPM client for a short amount of time. But I think had I been in the role for more like a year, I would have just seen a lot more, whether it's even just in call evals or call breakdowns or providing feedback to my mentees. I had kind of a narrow scope of what success looked like because I'd found what worked really well for me and then the people who I was around very frequently. And so I think one of the hardest things was just not having as much background to make me super equipped because the fundamentals are going to be the same across the board. But now it's like working on a data analytics campaign. I've had experience working on a cloud data management company. And so the talk track and the approach, there's some similarities there. And so I think just not having as much exposure made it more difficult as I was experiencing new things as a DM. What about the biggest misconception of being a leader of leaders? You're asking the hard questions, Chris. One thing that I've always heard is the higher up you are, Like the less control you have and the less involvement you have sort of at the lower levels and stuff. And maybe it's just because at this moment in time, 
I have the luxury of having a little bit smaller team, but I don't feel like that's the case unless I would choose to. Being in office, I love that even at the managing director level, I can go pop over to a team and shadow their blitz or sit in on call email and give them feedback, really get to know the SDRs. So I think the big misconception was like, you know, you're not really going to be as involved with these people. Sure, I'm not going to have the same day-to-day involvement with SDRs as I do as a DM, but it still feels very in the mix, which is something I wasn't, I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case moving into this role. Excellent. Thank you. So how did you take the step to the next role? So the role you're currently in now, which is you're a manager director, you have a team of delivery managers, you have a team of SDRs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, typically around the, the two-year mark as a delivery manager is when it makes sense to start having some conversations about what's really next for you. You know, you're starting to kind of master the role at that point as someone who is always a little itchy to understand <laughs> what's next, what's available. You know, I can see that the growth in this company. And so I didn't want to miss an opportunity. So I started having these conversations probably more like at the year mark. Nothing was necessarily moving at that time because I still had a lot of learning to do in the DM role. But I wanted to make sure that if there were opportunities that I was excited about, that I could at least have the opportunity to put my hat in the ring. And so, Mark, when you were out here... I don't know when, probably it was about a year into my DM tenure. We started just kind of floating various ideas and growth paths and what that would look like, talking about where you see memory blue headed and the type of talent you're looking for to continue growing the company. And one of the things we talked about was just what would it look like to add another managing director at one of our satellite offices? So In HQ, we've got multiple managing directors. Obviously, that's where the company started. Biggest office. But I didn't want to leave Denver. I decided this was home. And so we talked about what the leverage ratio would look like Mm -hmm. to make sense. And from there, you know, the wheels kind of got turning. And I think it was probably that following week, I had a one-on-one with Joey, who was still my managing director at that time. And I was like, I want to help you grow this office so that we make it so big that it makes sense for me to be your peer. I want to be a managing director. I want to help with that. I want to be your strategic partner in making this successful. And so from there, we started kind of talking about what that would look like, what he would need to see from me, what some of the things that I maybe needed to still develop and how to do that, executing game plans. And all that said, the more we talked about it, the more ideas we brought to you, to Kristen, and made kind of a business case for why this would make sense. Of course, with collaboration from you guys and enablement and approval and all that. But it was really exciting to see that this idea that maybe hadn't been done at one of our smaller offices could be executed just based on me raising my hand and presenting a strong reason for us to move this along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've been good about vocalizing, like you're a really good example of someone being their own advocate, mm-hmm. right? And not that you needed it. You're performing quite nicely. 
but you've always been interested in the next thing and talking about that with us. And I'm always curious about where did that come from too? Like that whole concept of making sure you had a seat at the table. Yeah, that's actually a great question because going back to my mom and her like cold calling, (laughs) she probably would have told you that like I don't advocate enough for myself. And that's actually feedback that I would get from professors and teachers is like, you know what you're talking about, but sometimes you're not very quick to volunteer that. Yeah. And I think along my professional development and memory blue, I started to observe the people that I admired and the people that were moving forward in their career. And I think it was just kind of this switch of like, it's okay to not have the perfect answer, but if you've got an idea, share it, you know, because maybe it is a perfect answer. Maybe it's at least like the best answer. And if you want a change to happen, you can't just sit there. You have to advocate for yourself. Yes. Yeah. At, at all levels of the organization. Absolutely. Right. Right. That's like a lesson everyone else can mm-hmm. take to heart. Yeah. And it helps you have an impact on what's going on. Totally. And I was going to say with kind of the management style that I pride myself on is like, I want to be a really collaborative team and get other people's ideas because I know that I'm not always going to have the best idea. But on the flip flop of that, you know, if, I have a boss and they're looking to the team. It's okay for me to raise my hand and give my opinion because maybe it's not the one chosen, but maybe it is. And that is just going to help us grow. Or maybe that really inspires someone to change their style of outreach and they, you know, they're hitting quota because of those changes. And so I think it's better to at least share that than to keep quiet if there's an opportunity for other people to benefit from it. Yeah. Excellent. So let's talk about this real quick. This is a nice little segue because you're doing a great job as a managing director. There's more more to come from you on that for sure. There's a lot lot of chapters in that book left to be told. Women in tech, right? Where women, you know, we have clients who ask us fairly often, hey, we need, we'd like, you guys have some women we can work with, that sort of thing. And we always try and say, yeah, we're working on that. That's always the biggest initiative diversity, inclusion, and backgrounds genders, so on and so forth. But why do you think there aren't more women working in tech as SDRs? You hear at the tech companies kind of out there. And you could, you kind of like, I don't want to say you stumbled into it, but it was a, we have people major in sales or minor in sales and you didn't have any of that. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm thinking back to my education and what was kind of the obvious paths for women and of course there was no like clear like do this or don't do that but I don't think that there's enough conversation at an early age about the various segments of business yeah because we see it even with candidates we interview you know we interview a lot of marketing majors yeah and Candidly, marketing didn't really excite me in high school or college and sales wasn't on my radar. So I think it kind of starts with just the education earlier on about like, maybe you don't want to go into marketing, but if you're competitive and driven, self-starter, here are some other opportunities. As far as just getting more women into this industry, you know, it, I don't know, it's, 
it's competitive. I think like people have their preconceived ideas of like entry level sales job can be a boys club. And then Marie Blue, like our Denver office, sure, we've got more men than women working here, but it's not that disproportionate. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is just like you said, advocating for yourselves as like, feeling comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, it's an industry where you are going to get shut down. You are going to get no's, but that's okay because it makes you stronger and more tenacious and better at anything you do afterwards. So, you know, for all my women listening to this, do it, try it. You know, if it's not for you, you're still going to develop some amazing skills that are going to help you in the long run, even if you ultimately decide sales is not where you want to be long-term. Yep, exactly. Nice. Spoken like a Waller lady MD, right? I mean, people want to find more Julian Fitzgeralds to come work here and kind of, I don't know, climb the corporate ladder. I know that sounds terrible. Like that word is associated with a lot of pause, but it's, we want her, so Mark, we want her, we want, we want these people to come here and run the point. Run the point. Run point. Run the offense. Yeah. Call the plays. Yeah. The floor general. Tell me where to go on the floor, Mark. I don't want Julia to tell me, Mark, don't you ever shoot the ball and just play deep, get rebounds. <laughs> you shoot the ball, I'm going to bench you. <laughs> tell Corbin to run faster. <laughs> All right. Well, Julia, knowing everything you know now, what would you have told yourself the night before you, I guess, started at the company? Yeah. Have more confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to that advocating for yourself is like be comfortable with what you're doing and the way you're doing it. But with that, you know, be a sponge. Memory Blue has an incredible amount of resources. And one of the things I really admired about one of my coworkers when I was an SDR was she was like in every facet of Memory Blue picking people's brains. Like Mm -hmm. she reached out to Tommy Gassman. Mm -hmm. She reached Mm -hmm. out to Kristen. Mm -hmm. She was exploring this and Mm -hmm. that. And that was just something that early on in my tenure, I wouldn't have even thought to do. Like, yeah. you know, so this is such an amazing and unique company where everyone is really excited about the growth opportunities and they want to help you succeed and get better. And so use the expertise of those more senior people because there's always going to be something you can learn from it. That's huge. You just remind me about something. There's some buckies here who have been in my business, who work on your team, who want to sit down and chat for a few minutes. Awesome. We've got an obligation to them. There's <laughs> many Julias. Yeah. Right? They want to know whether, whether they're going to come in for corporate next. Yeah, I, I probably told them that. And they're like, i got to get some time with the art. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty okay. soon your calendar is going to be very filled up. But, That's right. You know, it, it also is just exploring the different paths, too. You know, my friend who I worked with, she didn't know if she wanted to go into individual contributor roles, direct sales. She didn't know if she even wanted to be in a company where it was like selling services and consulting and stuff. So she was trying to really navigate, you know, what am I passionate about? What are the things I really like about tech sales or, you know, managing or whatever? And so sometimes the best way to really uncover that is to connect with people who have been doing it, who have some advice for you. That's right. I encourage anyone who listens to this to reach out to you, whether they work in Memory Blue or not. Yeah, right? absolutely. Happy but, to chat. Excellent. Julia, it's been a great journey so far. 
I'm looking forward to continuing. I love coming out to this office because what you guys got going on here is just strong. It's got a good vibe. Yeah. You've been a critical part of building the culture. If you mm-hmm. think about that, that's pretty significant. Like you built the culture. These people who come in here, got hired out, stayed, all because of indirectly, directly because of your leadership. So Chris and I greatly appreciate that. Yeah. Definitely. Denver office is fun. <laughs> Denver office is awesome. All right. Well, that's it. We'll, we'll do this again sometime soon. Hope so. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. We're going to get back to work now. All right. <laughs> if your sales team struggles to hit quota or generate qualified leads, Memory Blues Academy Prospecting Principles Training Program is the solution. Great sales training is time intensive and requires continuous guidance from sales experts. In this six-week course, our world-class facilitators use a hands-on learning approach to turn raw talent into industry-leading salespeople. From building targeted outreach lists to strategically overcoming objections, the key prospecting skills taught here create the foundation for strong sales performance. Our proven training cuts SDR ramp time in half and increases quota attainment by 89%. New cohorts launch twice per month. Head to memoryblue.com slash academy to see upcoming dates and secure your seat today. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep.